welcome to week three of this teaching series called Pendulum. This is the question we've been asking in Pendulum. Is it this or is it that? For instance, when we hear two words like grace and truth, we can't help but place them on a pendulum. Is God more about grace or is God more about truth? But of course, the answer to that question is yes. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to a double major. In other words, you don't just get to major on grace because in doing so, you will lower the standard for truth. And at the same time, you don't just get to major on truth because then you will, you'll crush people in the process because you'll refuse to give them the same exact grace you're also going to need. That God put on skin and bone and came to the planet in the fullness of both grace and truth. And that was week one. And then last week, Ryan slowed the pendulum swing between atheism that teaches there's no God and pantheism that teaches God is all and all is God. And he showed us, no, actually there's one true God who, by the way, is really, really good at being God. And this God made you in his, in his not to be like him, but in his likeness. And that's a really big deal. You are made in his image. And that was last week. The question we're asking today is this. Is God sovereign over everything, or does humanity have free will? Is God sovereign over everything, or does humanity have free will? In other words, are you in charge of what you do and don't do, or does God sort of choose what you, what you do? Did God really predestine and pick those who would spend forever with him in heaven? Or do we get to choose whether or not we, we choose him and believe in him or not? And if God is sovereign over everything and God's gonna do what God's gonna do, then should we even pray or should we just play pickleball all day? And my answer to that question as well is yes. <laughs> Genesis 2 verses eight and nine. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden where he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. You see what God's doing? He's creating options. He's creating choice. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and bum, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We see God sovereignly create a garden the way he wants to. We also see him right away give free will to Adam. The title of this message is The Predestination Paradox. The Predestination Paradox. So God, we love you so much, and I pray you'd help me preach this and convey your heart. I pray you'd open our ears, and I pray ultimately that our theology today would lead to doxology and worship and praise. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. The predestination paradox. All right, so here's a question after we just read that text. Have you ever asked yourself, like, why the heck was that stupid tree even in the garden in the first place? You know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve ate the apple? I think it was an apple, who knows? But when they did, like, everything was ruined. Like, God, why even put that tree in the garden in the first place? 
that has led to so much evil and so much pain? Why put it in the garden in the first place? I have a few answers to that question. I think first and foremost, to teach humanity from the very beginning that our obedience leads to our joy. That when you use your free will to choose what God sovereignly wants for you, it results in more of your fullness and completion. Obedience leads to joy. I think another reason the tree was in the garden is to show us that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, it's really good for your soul to hear the word no. When you tell yourself no, like even before humans were fallen, even before Adam and Eve ate the apple, restriction was a thing. Like restriction is good for the human soul. Don't eat from that tree. It teaches you you don't need everything that you want. I've got thousands of trees. I don't need this one. Like, you see how much God stacks the odds in their favor? How many trees were there? Like hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, thousands of hundreds. I just learned this last week. There's more trees on our planet than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, all right? I don't need this one tree. It's it, like to modernize it, it's when, you, it's when you have the means and you have the ability, you have the money, you have the desire and maybe even the opportunity, but you, you still tell your soul, nope, that is the ultimate sign of Christian maturity, in my opinion. But I believe the main reason the tree was in the garden is because for love to exist, choice must also exist because love is a decision. In other words, in order to, in order to choose God, you also must have the opportunity to not choose him. So in the beginning, I've heard it said that God was about to create and he had four options. So if you're ever about to create your own universe, you've got like four options. Number one is create nothing. Number two is create a world where there's no such thing as good and evil. Number three is create a world where there is such thing as good and evil, but we can only choose good. Or number four, create this world where there is such thing as good and evil and we have been given free will. For it is in the fourth option alone that love is possible because love is a choice and cannot be forced. Forced love is called abuse. Our God is not abusive. Think of the movie Aladdin. When the genie says to Aladdin, I'll give you three wishes, buddy, but there are a few caveats here. There's three caveats, actually. I can't kill anybody. I can't bring anyone back from the dead. And I can't make anybody fall in love with somebody else. Now think about those first two for a second. He can't kill anybody and he can't bring anybody back from the dead. Why couldn't the genie do those two things? Because it's a Disney movie. <laughs> and that would get really weird really fast. Like he's a genie. You don't think that fool could take somebody out? Like please, that's child's play. But the third reason I can't make anybody fall in love with anybody. The reason the genie couldn't do that is because it's actually impossible. I can't make anybody fall in love because love is not just a feeling of the heart. That part's easy. Love is an unforced decision of the will. And a magic genie can't bring love into the world any more than a magic apple from a tree can bring sin into the world. The power behind both of those things is found in the decision. For there is nothing more powerful than a decision. For there is nothing more spiritual than to choose. I can't make anybody fall in love with anybody else. A world without choice would be a lot more ordered. There'd be a lot, be a lot more ordered. 
There'd be a lot less evil, there'd be a lot less pain, but it would by definition also be loveless. That tree was sovereignly in the garden in the first place because love requires free will. It just does, it requires free will. But if you're like me, you start thinking, well, God, like, it's so risky though. <laughs> like, that's a risky little game, God. You think of all the pain and suffering and, and, and evil that free will has led to. You guys, like, uh, there's some stuff about our God that I don't fully get. He does some things that I don't think I would do. Just all my cards on the table between you and me. I wouldn't have put that tree in the garden. I would never think to do that but I would also never give my son for you. Not on his worst day and not on your best day. For this God who sees what you don't, who sees the end from the beginning, for this God, apparently love is worth the risk. Eternal good is worth the temporary bad and your joy is worth his pain. Right now we see in part, one day we will see in full exactly why and how God is sovereign and humanity has free will, amen? Let's just define a few of these terms really quick. God's sovereignty, this is how I say it. Nothing that happens occurs without God knowing and allowing it. Now right away, that could be a hard pill to swallow because bad things happen all the time. And God, I'm not saying he caused it, but I am saying he knew about it and choose not to stop it. You think about the disciples, Jesus told them to get into the boat and row to the other side while he climbed a mountainside to pray for them. And then a storm hits. I'm not saying God schedules the storms in your life, but I am saying he expects them, he knows about them, and he uses them. And I learned from a Holy Lands professor that the sea the disciples were struggling in was visible from the exact spot on the mountain where Jesus was praying for them. So just because you don't see God in your life doesn't mean he can't see you. Romans 8.34 right now says Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God and in real time right now he is praying for you and interceding for you. And so he didn't cause that but he knew about it and didn't stop it. And Well, God is sovereign. He is, he's omniscient which means he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. God is ferociously sovereign. Nothing that happens occurs without him knowing and allowing it. But then at the same time, humanity has choice. Humanity has free will. Here's how I'll define free will. The power and capacity to decide what you will do or not do in any situation. And we can't help but just place these two things on a pendulum swing once again. Okay, but is God sovereign or do we get to choose? Like if you go to Velvet Taco for lunch today, is that because you chose to go there or did God predestine you to go get Velvet Taco today? And you might say, well obviously I'm choosing right now to go to Velvet Taco However, the only reason you're choosing Velvet Taco is because I brought it up and now all you can think about is the buffalo chicken taco and the Mexicali shrimp taco. But you're choosing to go, but maybe God predestined me to talk about it in this message. So the only reason you're choosing it is because God predestined this. Like, is God sovereign or do you get to choose? Do you have free will? Predestination, by the way, also called election, is taught in the Bible. 
that before the foundations of the world, God predestined those who would choose him. God is sovereign. But at the same time, free will is also taught in the Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever uses their free will to choose to believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So is it, is it this or is it that? And what I wanna show you today is the answer is yes. I wanna unpack the, the predestination paradox and show you that truth is oftentimes found in the tension. Like Charles Spurgeon once said, truth is in the tension. And Jesus once said, truth will lead to, to your being free, which means our freedom is oftentimes found in our willingness to step into the mystery of the middle. His truth is in the tension. Away from all of these half-truth, easy answers that we slap onto very complicated questions and problems and complexities of life that we just throw Christian cliches at because it's easier than standing in the tension. But I wanna invite you into it with me today. The paradox of, of predestination. And I wanna use scripture to bother your brain a little bit. Look at Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. Jesus said this, okay? All things have been committed to me by my Father. Nobody knows the Son except the Father, and nobody knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So nobody can know God other than who Jesus chooses to know God. So God is sovereign, but wait a second, look at the very next verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. So come on, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So we have a statement about the sovereignty of God, and then immediately after, Jesus follows it up with an invitation that you get to use your free will to decide whether or not you will RSVP yes to. It's incredibly not helpful. You know what's less helpful is John chapter six which swings the pendulum about 20 times. I'm gonna show you just five of them, starting in John 6, verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, but whoever chooses to believe in me will never be thirsty. Okay, so humanity has free will. But then look at verse 38. All those the Father gives me, who God chooses, all those the Father gives me, they're the ones who will come to me. Okay, so God's sovereign. Until verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and chooses to believe in him shall have eternal life. Okay, so we do have free will until John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Okay, God is sovereign. Surely, verse 47, will just tie this up in a nice neat bow for us. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes, the one who chooses to believe with their free will will have eternal life. Is it this or is it that? I mean, does that not make your brain hurt just a, just a little bit? And this paradox and tension is all over the Bible. I'm just showing you a few places. It's almost as if God wants us wrestling with him. If you go to Acts chapter two, Peter's about to preach his very first sermon and in the crowd he's preaching to is the people who actually crucified Jesus. So that's his audience and Peter says this in Acts 2, 22 through 23. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God knew about this. It was his plan all along. But then you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So wait a second. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a murder. It was a beautiful plan by a divine God from the very beginning to do for you and me what we can never do on our own. This was, this was with God's foreknowledge. He predestined Jesus to go to the cross. And at the same time, you chose to crucify him. Wait a second, was it God's plan? Or did they choose? Is it this or is it that? And once again, my answer to that question is yes. The paradox of predestination in this tension that's everywhere and maybe not any more clear than it is in Romans chapter nine and Romans chapter 10 which are back-to-back -back in the Bible on purpose, by the way, because they need to be read in tandem with each other. You need scripture in order to understand scripture. In Romans chapter nine, I mean, it's so explicit about the sovereignty of God. Paul pulls no punches. In Romans chapter nine, it's kind of crazy if you go read it. He even goes as far as to say, hey, God's gonna have mercy on those he wants to have mercy. And God's gonna show wrath to those he wants to show wrath. Sort of the same follow-up to what Daniel said in the Old Testament. This God right now is in the heavens. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to. And there ain't a soul that gets to shake their fist at him. Nobody gets to take him to court if you're unhappy with how he's choosing to run his universe. He is terrifyingly sovereign over everything. But then immediately, you then jump to Romans chapter 10, and all Paul talks about is our free will and our choice saying, if that's true, let's get the gospel to as many people as possible so people can use their free will in order to choose him. God is sovereign, and we have free will at the same time. Like, he predestined that, but then you chose it? I mean, it's almost like it's, like, that's a rectangle. God's sovereignty is a rectangle, and then humanity's free will is like a circle, and we write books and preach sermons all the time that say, oh, they're the same thing. No, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Those don't, those don't go together, or do they? You're not gonna like my answer. They never have, and they always will. God's sovereignty and man's free will. These are the twin truths in the Bible that run parallel to each other. Think of the two rails on a, on a train track. They will never intersect, but they work together to bring you to the exact same place. And God's invitation is to, can you stand in the tension between two things that contradict each other in your reality, but that are both exactly true at the same time? You guys, these, these two things will never be harmonized in the human mind. Never. And I think part of my assignment today is to get you and me just kind of okay with the fact that there's some stuff about the God of the universe you will never fully understand this side of forever. Because in two dimensions, that circle and that rectangle will never be the same thing. You will never make that rectangle into a circle. You will never make that circle into a rectangle. It's not about trying to force them together in our dimension, but rather it's about seeing them from another dimension. That wait a second, they're not the same thing, but they are the two different sides of a more complicated shape. Are you seeing that? God is sovereign, humanity has free will. Are they the same thing? No. Are they the same, are they two parts of the exact same truth? 
absolutely. And you don't force them together in our dimension. You simply trust they somehow go together in his. You don't force them together in our dimension. You trust they go together in his. Tim Keller once said it this way. God's plan works through our choices, through our choices, through our choices. In other words, you did not mess up God's plans for your life. You're not that powerful. We're talking about the sovereignty of God that works through your free will, not around or in spite of them, but through our choices. So God's plan will sovereignly work through your decision to go to Velvet Taco today. So live it up. God is sovereign. Humanity has free will. Let's bring that into 2023. God will protect you. He's sovereign. He'll protect you. But lock your door at night. God will provide for you. But get a job. God has a wife in mind for you. But go ask her out, man. Jesus said, sovereignly he decided, on this rock I will build my church. That is a sovereign decision from God. Not even the gates of hell will stop it. Nothing will overcome it. God is going to do it. And at the same time, he's telling us, so you guys give, go, serve, preach, invite, worship, build this thing. Wait, is it this or is it that? It's God through us. This is a pattern all throughout scripture if you look for it. You see nonstop the sovereignty of God and a constant invitation to his kids to use our free will to decide to be part of the story that he's writing. God said to Noah, I'll deliver you from the flood, but go build an ark. God said to Moses, I will deliver your people from Egypt and Pharaoh, but go get them and lead them. God said to us six years ago, I am going to do something amazing in Austin. Like I have decided I'm going to do that. And I will do it with or without you. I'm going to do it. But should you and your friends decide to say, yes, I would love to use you and anybody else that, that I bring along. Life is a paradox of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, not either or, both and. When people in the lobby, um, kind people in the lobby come up to, and this happens all the time because you guys are so great, come up to me all the time and say, hey man, that sermon was awesome. Like, thank you so much, that, that really spoke to me. And I, I used to just do this, like a, like a gut reaction. All, I used to just go, all, it's all God, all God. Okay, no, no, I'm just saying like I really, I appreciated the, uh, like that, God really used it like that was, no, it's all, like, don't try to compliment me. I'm a wretch saved by grace. Save your encouragement. It's all God. Until a few years ago, somebody called me on it and said, hey, if it's really all God, then why, why do you work so hard? Because you do. Why, like, why do you prep so much if it's real, if it's just all God? Like, let's take it to the extreme of what we, we really mean when we say it's all God. Why do you do anything if God does everything? It's because you know deep down, and this is gonna ruffle feathers at first, but I want you to sit in this tension. It's not just all God. And it's not just you, obviously. Now, God could do it without you, and you can't do it without him, but it's not just, 
And before you say heresy, I would say no, Bible. From the beginning, the design of God has been him through humanity. His sovereignty through our free will. So before you, you think, well, that's kind of rude to God to say it's not all God. Not if this was his idea. Like his design, his dream, his blueprint for this whole thing is his sovereignty through us. For whatever reason, this sovereign God has invited you and me to play along. He's like, I'm looking for those who are willing. Like God, I'm willing to put in 15 hours of prep work to preach a message. Okay, his sovereignty through our responsibility, through our free will. God's sovereignty through our free will has been his plan from the beginning, man. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So are you just choosing to do those good works or are you simply doing what God has prepared and preplanned and predestined for you to do all along? Are you guys ready to think? No, really though. Like this ain't like, watching an Office episode for the eighth time, like this is watching five minutes of Inception right now for the first time. Like you, I need you to follow me. Are you ready to think with me? You with me? We'll see. In the beginning, God created. Time and space are part of creation. So in the beginning, before God created, there's no creation yet, and there's no such thing yet as time and space. It's not like there was just God and a bunch of space. There's just God, a three-in-one God in one eternal moment. And then one day, which really was no day because there's no such thing as time, this three-in-one God wrote the names of all those he predestined for heaven forever with him into something called the book of life. Those he sovereignly knew ahead of time would use their free will in order to choose him. So even before time started, God planned it all even though his creation would be free to plan. So keep following me. Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things and in him, somebody say in him, in him all things hold together. So where is creation right now? It's in Christ. Where is the timeline of history that you and I exist on? The timeline all the way from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created all the way to Revelation 21 verse one that says the current heaven and the current earth pass away. There's all, all history takes place in between those two statements. The entire timeline of humanity, where does that exist? Literally it exists in Christ, in Christ. So keep following me, Revelation 22:13. he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So imagine for a second, I'm God, that's ridiculous. Bear with me, go with me, praise God I'm not, but go with me. Then the entire timeline of everything would literally play itself out within me. So from beginning to the end, the alpha to the omega, if you prefer Greek, the first to the last, all of it happening within 
God, which means the beginning of creation, when God said, let there be light, and the universe exploded out the speed of light in every direction and has been ever since, like that's not a, that's not a place God was. That's a place he is because it's in him. And the end of all things, when Jesus comes back and splits the sky in half, and that's not a place God will be. That's not a place he knows about. It's a place he is right now. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. Or, say it this way, time and space are within him, you guys. There is where he is. Where, when, doesn't matter. It's not like he's the alpha now and one day he'll be the omega. He is the alpha and the omega. There is where he is. So the day you were born at the hospital you were born in, is he there? Yeah, he's, he's there right now. The day Paul Rudd was born at that hospital, absolutely. God was there, God is there. There is where he is because creation, time and space exist in him. One of my favorite authors of all time, Gene Edwards, he says this, if you can see that creation is in Christ, you can also see the resolution of much of the paradoxes, mysteries, and enigmas of our faith. After all, words like predestined, chosen, preordained, and foreknown could very easily raise a number of questions, especially when you add the words free will. But if we see the greatness of Christ before creation, the paradoxes start to vanish. In other words, God predestined those who were chosen and wrote their names in the book of life at the beginning where he is, where he always is. Because they were already seen at the end where he is, where he always is. Is God sovereign or does humanity have free will? Humanity has free will quite literally within the sovereignty of God, amen? The Protestant Reformation took place in the 1500s and uh, the Roman Catholic Church had become really, really corrupt and they were doing a lot of sketchy things. One of the things they were doing, just one, was selling these things called indulgences. And um, an indulgence, if you had a family member that died without Jesus and you were afraid they were in hell, then you could pay the church a ton of money. They would give you one of the indulgences and you could get that family member out of hell. Like very manipulative, very fear-based. And they got away with it because everybody was uneducated and illiterate and the only ones who had access to the scriptures were the priests and the priests used use the access to the scriptures, scriptures in order to control and to keep order until the printing press was invented and now Bibles were available and a man by the name of Martin Luther got his hands on one. It's who Martin Luther King Jr. was named after. And Martin Luther starts reading the Bible for himself. That's why we always encourage you, bring, bring your Bible to church. Read it for yourself at home. Because you can always like look at me and go, hey man, you're, you're saying this, but I'm reading this, okay? 
So important to read it for yourself. And he starts reading Romans and, and Romans 9 and 10. And he starts reading Ephesians chapter 2. And he starts to realize, wait a second, it's by my faith that I'm actually saved by his amazing grace, not because of works. And this church has me believing it's because of my works. This is way more of a religion and fear-based so they can control me. But wait a second, scripture actually says it's more of a relationship and I'm not saved by my works, but rather my faith in the grace of God. So in a protest against the corrupt church, he wrote down 95 things he wasn't happy with about the church and he nailed it to the front door of the church. And revival broke out and in many ways is still happening today and the gospel was rediscovered. And then soon after that, a brilliant, brilliant French theologian by the name of John Calvin developed one of the very first frameworks for understanding the scriptures that today we call Calvinism and it very heavily majors on the sovereignty of God. And then his understudy one of his protégés by the name of Jacobus Arminius disagreed with a few things that John Calvin was saying and developed his framework for understanding scripture that very heavily majored on the free will of humanity that today we called Arminianism. And um, I am not smarter than John Calvin. I am not smarter than Jacobus Arminius. I have spent many years of my life over here. I've read all the books, I've listened to all the stuff, I can talk this game with the best of them. I spent a lot of years of my life over here. I've read all these books, I've listened to all the stuff, I can talk this game as well. And I'm, like we'll get to this, I just, God is such a mystery I do sometimes wonder because I'm just an observer of people. I go, it sure seems like everybody over here has the same personality type. And it sure seems like everybody over here has the same personality type. And I go, it sure seems like something like very human is happening there. It's like I'm, I'm choosing either a rectangle or a circle. And I wonder if, like I wonder if there's beauty over here and I wonder if over here this is right, but it's incomplete without that. And I wonder if over here, this is right, but it's incomplete without that. Is it this or, or is it that? Or is there a way to sort of, I don't know, I don't know if it's understanding it from God's perspective or simply trusting these two things will never go together in our dimension but I know they do in his. These are the twin truths that are different, but the same side of the exact same shape in heaven that is leading us into the fullness of God that he's using to accomplish all of this. And, and um, I mean, I, I, I wanted to walk you guys through the differences between these two things because our church is growing. And I think it's really, really important that we understand theology more and more. Like doctrine matters so much. And I feel like more and more as truth just becomes relative. And, and you, you watch, the more relative truth gets, the more anxiety will continue to go up and up and up and up and up in our culture because we're without a firm foundation to stand on. 
And the more that happens, I go, man, the more we just, we need to understand doctrine and theology, but those two things are not the goal. They're not the end game. They are a means to an end game called wonder and worship. I've heard it said that theology that does not lead to doxology becomes idolatry. So it's so key and so important as a means, but because the end game of worship is so dearly important. But we'll get to that. The theology between these two things, um, which are both brilliant, by the way, these two different frameworks differ in five main areas. And so the first area is this area of depravity. Now, Calvinism would, would claim that we are totally depraved and completely spiritually dead, and there's nothing within us that could choose God even if we wanted to. Whereas Arminianism would say, ah, no, 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 we were, we're dead in our transgressions and sins, but there's still a little hint of something in us that can, that can somehow choose God out there. The second area they would disagree on is this area of election, or predestination, which essentially is God choosing who goes to heaven and who doesn't. And I already kind of walked you through the Christ, um, all of creation and everything within Christ, so you sort of know my heart. But Calvinists would believe in unconditional election. And if God has predestined you, there's no not choosing him. And if God has not predestined you, there's no choosing him. Whereas Arminianists would say, no, 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 we believe that God has picked the world and now we get to choose him back. The next area they disagree on is this area of atonement. Calvinists believe in a limited atonement. So when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to atone for our sins, it was only for those he predestined. It was only for the elect. Whereas Arminianists would say, no, 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 when Jesus shed his blood, it was for everybody, for God so loved the entire world, and now humanity gets to use our free will in order to decide if we want that atonement or not by believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The fourth space is this space of grace that they disagree on. Calvinists would say, no, 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 it's irresistible grace. In other words, once God reveals his grace to you, there's no resisting it. There's no walking away from that and like, oh, I'll receive Jesus next week. Once God reveals himself to you, you're just in and you can't help it. Whereas Arminianists would say, no, 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 it happens all the time when people hear about the amazing grace of Jesus and choose to walk away. And then the final area of disagreeance, um, disagreement is perseverance. And Calvinists would say, once you're saved, like that, that sort of perseveres. Like you, you're, you're, you always, you're always saved. You can't walk away from your salvation. You can't lose that. Arminianists would say, no, 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 you can get saved and receive salvation, but then later on in your life, if you, you can walk away from it and you can lose it. Once again, I, I seem to stand in the middle, like how I would say it is, no, I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose your salvation. But if you find yourself just completely walking away from it, it's probably because you never met the real Jesus in the first place. Now, here's what's crazy. Both of them are very different. Both of them are steeped in scripture. And we've got Calvinists in our church and Arminianists in our church, and I love it. And wherever you find yourself, I, I get you. I love it. it. Makes us better. These are not reasons to not gather. If anything, they're reasons to gather because you understand as hot, heavy, and heated as this debate has been over the last 2,000 years because this is, as far as debates go in Christianity, this is, this is probably the top one that has caused the most division between theologians and Christians and denominations and churches. But to quote Paul, the only first tier issue there is that exists is Christ crucified and resurrected. 
For that truth, we gather together and worship this God. The only thing that exists on the top shelf of theology and what we believe, Christ crucified and resurrected. I would call this a second tier debate. Very, very important, but this is critical. This is of utmost importance. Everything else, including this, is a discussion. Second tier, third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier, the top shelf. All that I know, Paul said, Christ crucified and resurrected. And for that reason, it's reason to gather. And I know that you're dying to know right now, Doug, are you a Calvinist or an Arminianist? I just wanna know, man, what are you? I'll tell you. But first, let me, uh, let me give you a phrase, a three-word phrase that I think Christians should say more. I think all people should say more. I think if Christians said these three words a lot more, the church would be better. Ready? I don't know. I don't know. And I pray the days of Christians being know-it-alls is over. In Jesus' name. <laughs> um, because I don't know about you, and maybe it's a pastor thing, I feel the pressure to have an answer for everything. Like everything, even like Nehemiah, people have asked me for directions before and I didn't know, but I gave them directions. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I need to have an answer for you and I can be like very convincing. So even as I'm giving them directions to a place I've never been, I'm like, I think that might be right. Like that sounds really good. <laughs> just feel pressure to have an answer and... I certainly have felt that from this platform before. And if I could just take the pressure off of you, you don't need all the answers all the time. In fact, sometimes saying I don't know is the most fruitful thing you can offer somebody. If you've ever been in a hospital room or sat in that living room right after the tragedy and you felt the pressure of like, I need to have something to say, actually the power of your presence is everything. I don't know but I'm here. I don't know. I don't know. You think about, once again, the disciples crossing the lake to the other side. They were just trying to get to the other side of the lake because Jesus told them to get in the boat and paddle to the other side of the lake and start storming. You ever feel like you're just trying to do what God told you to do and it starts storming on your life? Why the storms, pastor? I don't always know. Be wary of any preacher or Christian who tells you this is why that tragedy happened. I don't know. Why does it feel like Jesus is taking a nap on my boat in the middle of this storm? Why does it feel like he's not even listening? I don't always know. I know he's a good God. I know he'll get you to the other side. I know he, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. I know you'll be stronger and better for it on the other side when you get there. I know all valleys end at some point, but I don't always know. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher and beyond us. He's not a God of confusion, but he is a God of mystery. And you want him that way, man. You can't worship a God that makes sense to you. You can't worship a God that you fully understand. There's no wonder there. Your fears actually prime your heart for wonder if you let them. Your weaknesses prime your mind for worship if you let them. Like when Jesus finally woke up in that boat and calmed the storm, scripture says all the disciples were terrified 
and filled with wonder at the same time. That tension of afraid and amazed at the same time. I think worship and wonder, they happen in the tension. And we miss out on that when we throw easy cliches at complicated things that actually require us wrestling with the God of the universe and the mystery of who he is. That worship and wonder, I think, happen right above all of our cliches and half-truths and easy answers that we give to things when we don't always know. If you can't embrace the tension, I just, I don't think you're gonna like following Jesus very much. The guy just spoke in parables all the time that you'd walk away and have to like think about for two months. Like, what did he just say? Like, that's how God chose to communicate to us. Truth is oftentimes found in the tension. And so my best answer to that question is this. I sleep like a Calvinist and I wake up every single morning like an Arminianist. At night, I sleep soundly and rest in the sovereignty of God, whose ways and thoughts are so beyond me and so much other than me that somewhere out there, he's got all the infinite math figured out and knows how the shapes fit together. That this God's in control, that this God actually doesn't need me at all. He just simply wants me. Sleep soundly. And then wake up every morning like an Arminianist and walk out the front door with that sort of motivated spirit like I am God's plan A today and he don't got a plan B. The local church is God's plan A for the world. It really is. God doesn't have a plan B for reaching the world. The hope of the world is the local church that Jesus said, I will build. We're sitting in the middle. We are God's plan A. And can you walk out of these front doors and go into the sphere that God has placed you in knowing, God, you, you've called me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite and I'm gonna, I'm gonna love and I'm gonna build as if I believe You've called me. I'm not just living saved, I am living sent. I'm a Christian who's called and I live like it's true. And at the end of the day, I'm gonna rest in the fact that I am, I'm not an agent of salvation. And it's on you to save my friends and my coworkers and that's, God, that's you. And I'm gonna wake up every morning and know, but I am an agent of invitation. And I am an agent of, of building this thing. And God will sovereignly accomplish what he wants to accomplish through those who simply go, hey, I'm willing, use me. I feel that tension every time I preach because I know I can't string the right words together in the right order to save you. I can't do that. Doesn't even bother me that I, I, I almost kind of like, thank God, I, like that pressure's not on me. It's up to God to use people, use words, God through people to reveal himself to you. So I'm not an agent of salvation, but I'm gonna give it everything I got and I'm gonna prep with everything I got and I'm gonna sure try to string the words in the right order and the points in the right order to make Jesus as beautiful as he deserves to be to you so that maybe, just maybe, you'll see it. Maybe, just maybe, God will show you and then everything will change. So rest easy, Christian, for God is in control. Walk out your front door fired up, urgency, thrill of knowing I'm invited to play and be part of the craziest story that will ever be told. And I don't take that lightly. Second Peter 3, 9, this won't be on the screen, but it basically says the Lord is patient, not wanting anybody to perish. In other words, um, there's only one reason God hasn't come back yet. And it's because he wants as many of his kids as possible to use their free will to choose him back before he does. 
I said this in a sermon years ago, just randomly, and I loved it so much, I say it to you all the time, it's one of my favorite things to say, that much like a divine Danny Tanner, God wants his house full. He wants a full house, man. The only reason God hasn't come back yet is because he wants a full house. And that's it. For love to be love, it must be a decision. That's why we don't sit around doing nothing because, hey, God's sovereign and he's gonna do what God's gonna do anyways. Like Paul, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10, right after he talks about in Romans chapter nine, the sovereignty of God, he says, hey, all the more reason for us to, to preach with everything we got so as many people as possible will have the opportunity to use their free will to choose to believe him back. So at the end of the day, man, like I don't fully know. God is so much other than us. Creation, time, space, literally in him right now. So you can only, we all agree, you can only kind of understand him to a certain degree. And how cool and beautiful is that? Every Saturday morning at the Weckman household is Cinnamon Roll Saturday. And my kids love it. My two-year-old, um, I walked into her room yesterday morning at 7 a.m. She's already like standing up waiting for me. She's like, Daddy, Cinnamon Roll Saturday. And it's like, couldn't sleep all night. Just, and so we go downstairs and she helps me like she, turns on the oven and we, you know, get all the cinnamon rolls in the oven and we are the creators of those cinnamon rolls. The cinnamon rolls are the created. You and me are the created and he is the creator. And you don't understand the totality and complexity of this God of the universe any more than those cinnamon rolls understand the totality and complexity of me. Enjoy that. Don't just embrace God as a mystery. Start to enjoy the fact that he is. There's a difference between embracing it and actually starting to enjoy it. Because think about this. Every, I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. Every Christian, every pastor, every preacher, every theologian who has ever lived, every author, every denomination, every church, every Arminianist, every Calvinist, everybody believes something about the God of the universe that's wrong. You mean I got everything about God wrong? No, no. But you got something wrong. Not different, wrong, wrong. By definition, man, he's the creator, we're the created. He is so other, so beyond us, he's a mystery. You believe one thing at least about God and it's wrong. So how much should that reality right there unify us in humility to gather together and worship and praise the one we will never fully to be, able, be able to understand and we will never be able to exaggerate or write enough songs about or preach enough sermons about or write enough books about or have enough conversations about. Should unify us. Welcome to the club of I've got something about God that's wrong club. You got something different than me, but you got something that's incomplete and wrong about describing God. Welcome to the club. Let's gather in humility and kneel before the cross and not just embrace it, but enjoy it together. Because all my cards on the table, I think John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius right now are hanging in heaven and they could care less if you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist. They want you to worship the God they worship. 
And so I, it's my prayer that, uh, for that was the heartbeat of any frameworks that were developed, is to lead us into worship. Lead us in front of a God that will never fully understand and just go, wow. Like my two-year-old, once again, Kinsley, she is just got like the, she's so happy all the time. She has about one 30-second temper tantrum a day where like all the negative emotions just, she throws herself onto the floor, it's 30 seconds and then it's done. And then she's back to being the happiest little person on the planet that I've, she and everything is amazing to her. She is the epitome of childlike wonder. Even yesterday, I'm in the kitchen, she's out on the back porch and now she's banging on the glass door, daddy! And I, I run out, she goes, daddy, look at this bug. And it was an ant. I mean, how, how not cool is an ant? How ordinary is an ant, man? But she's just looking at it like, oh my gosh. Wow. I can't get over it. That's how she sees everything. You and me have outgrown that. And that sucks. And it's my hope and I think God's design when it comes to debate and discussions like this, it's good because theology matters. But once again, theology that does not lead to doxology or worship and praise becomes idolatry. So it's, it's so key, but as a very important means to an even more important end called wonder and worship. And that's why Romans 9 and Romans 10 can't be read without each other. And together they can't be read without Romans 11 which goes into something called the doxology. And this is Romans 11, 33 through 36. In fact, guys, can we all stand and we'll read this together? This is how Paul concludes this discussion about the, the sovereignty of God and humanity's free will. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. There's nobody like this God and there will never be, amen. Red Rocks, will everybody bow your heads and uh, just for a moment between you and this indescribable God, um, really quick, if you're in here and you have never using your free will to choose the grace of Jesus, to make him your Lord and Savior, um, I think what I wanna say is let's, let's, not, let's not worry about theology and talk about everybody else, let's talk about you. We always ask the question, what about the guy on the island, the deserted island who never, let's not talk about him, you're not on an island, you're here, hearing the gospel hearing about the amazing grace of Jesus. And this is no religion. This is no, nothing that has to do with works. This is simply just God, I make you my Lord and Savior and I choose you back. And if I'm talking to you and you wanna say yes to that, just raise your hand boldly so I can pray for you. Amen, let's go. Come on guys, come on, let's go. Let's go, amen, 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 amen. Thank you. Okay, God, we love you so much. And um, I thank you that Eternities were just changed and I thank you that right in front of our eyes we just got to see um, more of those names that you already wrote in that book even before the beginning that you knew about today. So would all this theology now lead to doxology and simply a formula to praise you? In Jesus' name, amen.